For the past few months, right-to-work legislation has dominated the Missouri General Assembly's agenda. And even though it didn't make it past the finish line in veto session, State Representative Eric Burleson has a plan to bring it back next year. The Springfield Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I'm welcoming back my colleague who has been transversing across the East Coast. (laughs) For two and a half weeks. Yeah, this is Joe Manis, also with St. Louis Public Radio. Sorry to interrupt. This is the first thing that she's done since she's been back on her well-deserved vacation. And joining us from the beautiful KSMU studios in Springfield, Missouri, we have as our special guest today... This is Eric Burleson, a state representative from Springfield, a Republican. Welcome to our show. I believe you are the first Springfield legislator of any kind to appear on our show. Well, and he's an up and comer in the state house. Oh, thank you. Well, it's good. It's about time that people in St. Louis realize that there is a Springfield on the on the west side. <laughs> of oh, the we state. do. <laughs> well, we we certainly know, but I I think St. Louis just sees Springfield as the the place in Illinois where. Uh, the Illinois legislature fails all the time. <laughs> um, the 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 Sp- Springfield, Missouri, Springfield, I think, is a bit more prosperous and successful than the the one in Illinois. Yes, it's the home of Missouri State University. That's right, and um, and you're it's also the third largest. Well, depending on how you count, it's at least the third largest um, community in Missouri. Some say it's actually second, but it, the point is, is that it's one of the top three. Yeah. And we've got so. the largest um, school district, I think, at this point. Yeah, I would, I would imagine so. But before we get into any issues, because we have a lot to talk about uh, after the veto session, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into Missouri politics. Well, I, um, I'm a more, mostly a, a software computer nerd by trade. Um, I grew up um, in, in this in Southwest Missouri um, and uh, really in the back door um, in the shadows of what is now Bass Pro, the, the big Bass Pro um, headquarters. The gigantic Bass Pro. Yeah. That's huge. Takes days to go through it. I've been there. And so we're really proud of, of uh, what Johnny Morris has done. And I grew up um, watching that, watching that business grow. And um, went to Missouri State and got a degree, and I got a master's in business administration. And my undergraduate is actually in philosophy, which did not serve me very well whatsoever in the private sector, but has served me fairly well in in my legislative career. Um, I bet. How so? I'm curious. To, I'm curious. How does a degree in philosophy help you navigate the treacherous waters of Jefferson City? Uh, it's it is really interesting because um, there's often times where I'm reminded about um, debates or subjects that we that we read about or studied, and particular th- thoughts and and theories um, that would never have come up in private conversation, but. Uh, you know, for example, I, I remember as we've had we're talking about the criminal code or other things. I I've, I was reminded of 
Ferdinand Schumann and discussing retributive justice versus um, rehabilitative justice. And uh, we, I mean, it's just, it's often that we, that issues come up that, that we, that remind me of things that we, that I learned about in, in my undergraduate. So um, how long, you want to talk about when you got elected and sort of how you ended up wanting to get into politics in the first place? Yeah, my, well, growing up, my grandfather was active in the, uh, he was a Democrat and, um, and my grandmother was, uh, was very strong Republican and, and going to Thanksgiving dinners was always really interesting because uh, my uncle, who is locally, he was on, served on city council and was probably one of the first, if not, I mean, very few elected libertarians in the area. Uh, in oh, the Midwest. Oh, wow. Wow. And so our family... <laughs> Multicultural background. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, as a, as a kid growing up, I, I heard at, at Thanksgiving dinners, we, don't, we didn't talk about sports. We talked about politics. And so it, I was always fascinated by it, but really inspired by my grandmother and, and, my, and my father, really, who was an entrepreneur. And I, and I really thought that um, saw all the struggles that he went through trying to build his business and decided that that was, that was really um, what I believed in most was the, was the American spirit of someone who takes that risk, who wants to um, build more. And I, and I really thought that that's really what grows the economy is the people that are willing to do that, take that risk. So um, I started volunteering for candidates that I, that I liked and one of the candidates I really admired was uh, Norma Champion, mm-hmm. and so she was um, she was a state representative at the time, and I ended up becoming an intern for her in 1999, along with at the same time Adam Crumbless, who was who is now the chief clerk of the House. He and I were both interning from Missouri State that year, and I. And, yeah, just for our listeners, uh, Norma Champion is a legendary broadcaster yes. in Springfield. I believe that she was nicknamed Aunt Norma, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and she ended up being in the state senate for I think eight years, and I think was actually inducted into like the Missouri Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And I think she has a doctorate in communication. So very fascinating political figure and woman. Um, but continue, Representative. Oh, it's yeah. She was um, she was great to know and and she was very she was one of the wisest people that I've ever known and she um she there's still to this day some things that I remember her saying to me when I was interning or even first getting elected and I one of the most special honors that I had was that the first two years that I was in office I I was able to overlap and share with her while she was in the Senate so her last two years in the Senate I was able to uh, serve my first two years in the House so I, you were elected in 2008. You you succeeded Representative B.J. Marsh uh, in the House, if, I, if I'm correct on that. Yeah, and that's actually – B.J. Marsh is really when I started making that transition of do I want to be run for office because, B, as you may remember, B.J. Marsh was – he had a, a lot of heart issues while he was in mm-hmm. office. And I remember one night – and I don't know that I've ever said this publicly, but basically one night – he B.J. Marsh was having a procedure in Texas, a very experimental heart procedure, and someone from the local Republican Party asked me to meet them at a Hardee's at like 9 o'clock at night. 
and I didn't know why. I was just a, I, I was, simp- I mean, I work as a software engineer and, and volunteer for campaigns, but they asked me to consider if something were to happen, would I consider um, uh, running for B.J. Marsh's seat or, or taking the nomination from um, if, if something were to happen. And, and things were not looking very good for, for, for Representative Marsh. And it really hit me. I never thought of myself as someone that could run for office. I've always um, really didn't see myself that, that way. I've always been more of a, you know introvert, um, a policy nerd, um, software engineer. Um, I did, don't spend my days going um, to, I mean, I just am not a, a, a person that walks into a room and, and t- takes over the room. I'm usually the wallflower in a room. And so um, it, it meant a lot to me that someone would think that of me. And so it started me on a journey of, of exploring it and talking with my wife about it before I decided to run. And then you ended up winning the seat. It was a, I, I think you won about 57, 43, and I don't think you have faced a competitive election since. And since that time, you've become the chairman of the House Professional uh, Licensing and Registration Committee. And I think that some passive followers of the Missouri Capitol may think that's not that big of a deal, but in actuality, it is one of the most important committees maybe in the Missouri legislature if you're an industry that is regulated by the state. Um, is that a correct summation, or am I kind of overblowing your, your, your role in the Missouri House No, there? I think you're, you're very right. In fact, uh, when I first came in, I was, I was advised that that's the number one committee that you want to get on and that it's extremely important. And I, to me, I, when I first saw it, it sounded like, you know, a boring committee. But it is it is a very fascinating committee. We regulate everything from doctors and and nurses and cosmetologists to um, professional wrestlers. And if you have a job, and, and when government at the end of the day, when government is writing rules and regulations that affect your livelihood and your career, you care very much about those issues. And so um, I often stress to the committee how important it is that they, that the decisions that we make are because they directly affect people's livelihoods. And from what, do you get lobbied by every conceivable industry known to man based on your, your committee chairmanship? Because from what I recall, the other people that were chairman of this committee, it, it seemed like it was a pretty in, they became kind of an, an important political figure in the Missouri House just by the virtue of that position. So do you like ever get any sleep because every industry wants your 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 take on something essentially? Yeah, it it is somewhat like I mean there's there's a lot of different groups and I until I got elected and served on this committee, I had no idea how many associations there were, but there there is an association for everything. Um and and all of those associations have membership and and uh, and and they are able to what what they typically do with a lot of that is uh, pay for lobbyists who then their job is to make look out, look out for what issues are affecting their those people's careers. So it, it's it is really interesting and and it's also uh, never boring. Every year, there's there's issues that are uh, different, 
you know, this year we had a lot of funeral issues, and I never thought that I would be chairing a committee deciding uh, when, with that when somebody dies, who is going to be responsible for making the decisions over what to do with the corpse. Uh, but that is, you know, that's one of the issues that we had this year. We, we have had issues related to who can sell unpasteurized milk or who can sell unbaked goods. We've had uh, issues where uh, people that sell hearing aids, what, uh, uh, whether or not they have to go to a two-year school or get a four-year degree. So it, you, know, you name it, if it has something to do with somebody's career, then our committee um, generally examines those issues. Yeah, it is a, it is a fascinating committee. Um, and I've known for a while how prominent it is it plays in the Missouri legislature. But let's shift gears to something that kind of involves Missouri businesses, and that's uh, right-to-work legislation. For our listeners, uh, Representative Burleson was the House sponsor of right-to-work, which, Joe, as you can, if, as you always do, could you just explain <laughs> what right-to-work is? Okay. The right-to-work bill in Missouri would have barred unions and employers from requiring all workers in a bargaining unit unit to pay fees or dues. That's, I mean, to, in, in essence, that's what it that is. That is essentially what the shorthand means. Now, Representative Burleson, this bill made it farther than any other iteration of right-to-work legislation probably in Missouri history. It made, passed the Missouri House. It passed the Missouri Senate after an acrimonious previous question. It was vetoed by Governor Jay Nixon, and it did not get enough votes in the veto session to be overridden. Um, were you? What was kind of your take on its trajectory this year? Um, you know, it was it, it was great to see that we were able to finally get this issue, which from my area is the 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 paramount issue. It's the the probably the most important issue to um, the the community in Southwest Missouri, particularly as you go further southwest, it's even more important. Uh, in fact, today um, there was an article in the Joplin Globe about a a meeting that was had um, at the between the Joplin Chamber and and businesses, further stressing the importance of passing right to work. That they see it as the number one issue. So, for uh, us, we can you explain for our listeners. Why um, you and your allies see this issue as being so important? Since uh, there really aren't any unions, very many in Southwest Missouri anyway. So I, I'm really interested, not just me, but many of our listeners are interested in this too. Well, um, explaining that. So, yeah. So, really, for bit, when you hear from, when we're out trying to find, get businesses to come, and we have a great labor force in this area, we have some of the best schools we have Southwest Missouri State or now Missouri State and we have um, OTC and Missouri Southern and we've we've got a very educated um, workforce but we constant we're getting turned down again and again and and uh, we're seeing manufacturing and, and other jobs leave and particularly in this area when you talk to people in the trades who are They've, they're getting jobs, but they're traveling. Most of the jobs are on the other side of the state line. And so it becomes pretty evident the impact that this one piece of regulation has. And really, what it really comes boils down to is for an employer is it's a risk. So if you are 
trying to compete in a global economy and you're trying to figure out where you're going to place your new plant or you're going to you know, start a business, you want to reduce as much r- possibility of risk as possible or uncertainty as possible. And so you're going to look at all of the, the federal and state and local regulations. You're going to look at the tax space. What are the property taxes? What is their personal property taxes? What are their energy costs in that area? Is there a, a workforce available? And having another, having to have to deal with another level of uncertainty for a lot of businesses is, is I think, what is the game changer for them. And that's why what we heard over and over again is that having right to work is not going to guarantee you that you're going to you know you're going to be picked as a site but it, but not having it is going to guarantee that you won't be um in in the running for a lot of businesses so we were we had as our guest last week uh state senator Gina Walsh a democrat from Belfont neighbors and she's is a former member of a labor union i think she's still part of it she heads the building trades association for Missouri and i asked her why when she was in the Missouri House from 2000 and I think 2002 to 2010, right to work wasn't a major issue, especially when Republicans controlled the legislature and the governor's mansion. Let's hear what she had to say about that. Well, at that time, the governor himself said that he would not support a right to work issue, the Republican governor. Matt Blunt, by the way. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat all my life. I'm also a labor person. And as a labor person, labor people know that uh, issues like right to work does not have a political party attached to it. So two questions there. I know that you weren't in the legislature when Matt Blunt was governor, but why do you think that this has become such a big issue in the legislature when the path to implementation is a lot harder with a Democratic governor? And two, what was your reaction when I think almost two dozen of your Republican colleagues in the House did not vote to override right to work? So uh, for me, this issue is one that the, I think the pressure and the, the reality is going to continue to build until it is, until it is passed. And, I, and you see that in the numbers. So when Governor Blunt was, was in office, the, the labor, the percentage of the workforce that was labor was a lot higher than it is today. We also had uh, a higher population. We had a, a lot more people working in Missouri. And here we are 10 years later, and over the past 10 years since Governor Blount was in office, um, we have seen um, the percentage and growth of our of our payroll in the private sector decline compared to the national average. Um, we've seen um, a loss in jobs in the in those last 10 years, and we've seen the percentage of our workforce that is um, that is unionized decline greatly. So the status quo of forcing people into a situation, whether it's in their best interest or not, might be good for the labor boss. But at the end of the day, the economics of it and the um, and and the results end up harming both, I think, labor unions and the state as a whole, because this issue is not just affecting the union population, which is now at... Uh, you know, around 8%, but it's affecting 
the other 92% as well. Because when I when we can't get companies to move to be excited about moving to Missouri unless we unless we pay them with tax credits or or other um, things from you know write checks from the treasury, then then we've got a problem. I'm, it doesn't hurt my feelings or affect me when I see colleagues vote in a way that's that serves their best interest or the best interest of their district. If they think that is that voting no is in their best interest or especially the best interest of their district, then I respect that. I um, I've I've not been one to to twist arms. I don't have the clout to twist anyone's arms on an issue. From the very beginning, I felt like my role in this is not to be the person keeping a whip count, or, um, but really the person that's there to provide as much policy information and education as I possibly can, and to get as much of that information out as I can. Now, you mentioned pressure. Um, where is most of the pressure coming from? Is it from donors? Is it from business groups? Uh, I mean, th- there are disputes over exactly what the figures are about whether or not labor, the labor force was that much smaller during Blunt years. It is true that the labor force that is in labor unions is about half of what it was in 1978 when it came up for a vote. But uh, where is most of the pressure coming from? You know, I think you've got on on outliers on both sides. You have you have pressure from. Um, you know the unions on, on, of course, on one side, and we heard a lot of that on the House floor. We heard from members that that had decided, after thoughtful consideration, to to vote for this, and and we heard their stories of the the pressure that they've received. I know that uh, Representative Spencer had a billboard placed in his district immediately after voting, and then you have on the other side, and you and you know to me the real the as an elected official, you when you put your name on the ballot, you know what you're you're getting into. And anyone that thinks that running for office is is a walk through a daisy field is really kidding themselves. Uh, this is it's it's an important job, and we make important decisions. And it's and it's good that the public is paying attention, and that they um, and but I also think that avoiding important issues because. Uh, is not good. I think that we, as elected officials, our job is to have is to take on issues that are important and not not be afraid to take on issues based on uh, uh, whether or not it's um, to just to avoid pressure. Well, I wanted to ask about another aspect of pressure, and I'm going to have uh, Senator Jamila Nasheed kind of lay it out for us. I was talking with her after the previous question of right to work occurred in May. And she had a theory on how it could impact uh, the 2016 elections, especially the one for governor. Many of them can go back home and say, look, we passed the right to work and the Democratic governor opposed it. And that's why we have to come out in droves and, and continue to con- control the House and the Senate and try to get the governor's matching. So it's been kind of assumed that this is going to become a major issue in the 2016 election, especially because the Democratic nominee or the likely Democratic nominee, Chris Coster, the attorney general, is adamantly opposed to right to work. And whoever comes out of the Republican field uh, is going to be in favor of it. So my question for you is, do you expect 
right to work to come up next year in 2016? Or is it really going to just kind of lay in limbo until the 2016 election for governor is decided? Well, I, you know, this has been an issue that regardless of the politics, I'm, I filed it year after year. And so my, it's my intention to file it, um, not only file it, but to pre-file the bill again. Um, it, the, the need for it doesn't go away uh, based on the vote. And so, um, so I'm going to, you know, I've been told year after year that uh, it won't, you're, it won't get out of the House or that it won't get out of the Senate, and yet um, we've been able to make progress each year. And I think that, for me, the more that people evaluate it and, and think about it in a thoughtful way, I believe more people come to the conclusion that it is the right course or the right direction for the state. So for me, the more that we debate this issue, the, I think the better chance that the issue has. Now, how crucial do you think it'll be, though, um, uh, reiterating Jason's question, in the governor's race? I mean, so far, virtually all the major Republican candidates for governor have said that they support right to work. Uh, right. Do you have any which sense is a, on how big of an issue it's going to be Which is a game change for, um, you know, that considering that Years ago, you, as, as you mentioned, that we've state, people running statewide had a different perspective on the issue. And I think that it's um, the fact that we've had this discussion in both the House and Senate has, I, I think, caused a lot of the candidates to, to take the stand that they have, knowing that, um, that you know, they've seen the, the House and the Senate move courageously on an issue that is very difficult and have a good, thorough debate on it. And I, I think that uh, it has helped statewide candidates take the position that they, that they have um, with more confidence that they, than they have been willing to do so in years past. So I, and well, I do think that it will oh, have, obviously, um, it will have um, a significant role in the, in the debates coming up. And it, it all has to do with um, how much do the national unions want to continue to get involved in the state, um, and and, um, and and and? But I do think that that's going to play into it. Is that you'll see that the national unions now, because the more that we tend to put off this issue, Missouri is the one that all the rest of the nation and those those unions are kind of focusing on. Right. And it'll definitely be, I think, a marquee issue in the gubernatorial race, and it could be another legislative issue next year. But we wanted to turn to an issue that is closer to us, but could be in the wheelhouse of the legislature soon, and that is the debate over the new football stadium in St. Louis. Now, even though uh, Representative Burleson is a representative from Springfield, many legislators from all over the state have raised alarm over the prospect of Governor Jay Nixon essentially issuing uh, state bonds for this project without a legislative or statewide vote. Before we get into the mechanics of that, what is kind of your take on on the situation there? And do you think that the state legislature should be involved in whether to issue these bonds or not? Yeah, I my consistent view has been that it's not the role of government to invest um, taxpayers taxpayer dollars in another business's enterprise. That that uh, base cap, true capitalism is 
private sector investment and private sector gains or loss. That it's not, um, you know, I, I don't see that the citizens of Springfield or even citizens of uh, any the rest of the state are receiving the financial dividends of the money that's being given to um, the owners of of the of these sports franchises um, af- after they receive success. And so, while one could argue that there's a um, that there's a return on investment to the taxpayers, that um, I, I really believe that the best way to do that is is not is to is to reduce the t- taxes for everyone, and not do so by picking and, and choosing. And so, I I think if if this is own, if it's owned by a private individual, I I believe that the state should not be funding their enterprise. So I would imagine that if the governor or the governor's administration issued bonds for this without the legislature's say, you may be one of the people who may vote against appropriating bond payments on this. Yes. Like some of your some of your some of your colleagues. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. And I think that it's disappointing that for me I want to at least have that debate. Um, whether or not we, whether or not it's appropriate for the state to be involved, uh, I think that for this, for the governor to obligate the citizens of Missouri to future uh, payments to to take out debt without a vote of the people or if without even a discussion of the, those that they elect is 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 really um, disappointing to and I think shameful to the citizens of this state. Well, I actually want to play a clip from Dave Peacock, who's one of the co-chairmen of the task force trying to bring a stadium in. And I asked him flat out what his opinion was on issuing bonds without a legislative or statewide vote. And he was, I would say, remarkably candid on his rationale for that. Here's what he had to say. I also know that legislative votes can be challenging. Um, and, And as much frustration as people have about one person extending bonds, I know at least in the Senate, one person can kill just about anything. And so if, if it's a question of one person keeping something alive and redeveloping our riverfront and growing our city, or one person killing it, I think I'd rather default to someone who's trying to lean forward. Now, obviously, you're a member of the Missouri House, so you, you have no power to filibuster anything. But I, I, when he said that, I was just imagining what the thought of legislators would be by his argument that getting something through the legislature is hard, therefore we should try it a different route. Uh, what's kind of your reaction to that mindset? Uh, I, I think that it's ignoring. I, I think it's. I think it's arrogance. To me, it's the the height of arrogance to assume that you somehow are owed money, and that the that um, how dare an elected official elected by the, those taxpayers who are who are basically paying your bills, how dare that person stand in your way from taking money from the citizens that are paying you? So to me, uh, there is a reason why we have uh, the elected process. There's a reason why we have the Senate. And, 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 for, and the, this is the very reason that we should never allow people to gain access to the public treasury. And, and so that, to me, I think it is the height of arrogance to assume that they just have carte blanche access to um, to what the taxpayers, not only that we have today, but for future generations to pay. 
Now, um, looking ahead to the next legislative session, aside from right to work and potentially a fight over the stadium, what do you see as big issues that will be brought to forward? Do you think there will be another debate over um, Medicaid expansion or maybe not? I know Springfield, the Springfield area, there's been some turmoil over that. And uh, I, I'm interested in your take on what other issues you think may be big uh, when the General Assembly returns in January. So I, I also th- I think f- transportation funding and making sure we have a, a, a strong infrastructure is going to be very important. Uh, I know that I've had discussions with the speaker on ideas for how we do how we go about that without a tax increase. Uh, last year, I filed a bill at the latter part of session. Uh, I think it was 1198 that would uh, basically create a framework for long-term funding for the Department of Transportation, and it does so by taking over the the payments uh, or the, the the salaries, pensions, and benefits of the workers within MoDOT, so that the money that they receive from the fuel taxes would go directly towards the construction or ba- basically go directly towards purchasing concrete. And, and, and the administrative costs would be paid for by uh, the, out of the general assembly, out of general revenue. And, uh, and, and so we've explored some ideas about that and then also some ideas of generating revenue without a tax increase by offering up opportunities to, say, farmers to harvest off of, uh, off of the right-of-way. Uh, I know that some people have explored allowing for naming rights of, of state roads. Uh, and then um, there, there's been some really a lot of create, creative ideas that are thrown out there to help. So you don't see any possibility of the uh, gas tax being increased next, next session? I don't. Uh, I th- and that's and pers- while the general assembly may go that direction that's for me that's not that's not a direction that i would that i would support in our last few minutes here we know that you sponsored legislation a couple of years ago about a health care compact which i think is something that some more republican leaning states are doing instead of expanding medicaid um what do you kind of see on that front given that i guess the, the window to get 100% free matching funds for Medicaid appears to have passed. It doesn't really seem like the Republican legislature has much appetite to expand the program under the auspices of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, we, I was, that, that was a bill that was um, one that I worked on and was the first in the country to, to draft. And now we have 11 states that have, have uh, passed that same language, which as a lawmaker is one of the, the biggest honors that you can have. And so We've, I've been hearing from presidential campaigns that they are examining the health care compact as, as, as uh, something that those candidates will be potentially using as the, on, their, on their platform as the answer and to And just Obamacare. kind of explain what it is. So the way the health care compact work, works is very similar to really what the Constitution is. The Constitution is a compact among states and the, within the Constitution in Article One, Section 10, and Clause 3, it allows for states to enter into a compact um, so long as that, the language of that compact does not exceed the scope of existing federal law. But once states have entered into a compact, 
that in then further or future federal regulation does it creates a shield of protection so uh if we have a healthcare compact in place then then it would require federal law and not just federal regulation in order to change state law if that makes sense so yeah that makes sense yeah so uh, a lot of states are looking at this as a way to as a shield of protection against really what is i think grown the fastest is is the bureaucracy of the federal government and um, and so uh, that that has been and whenever you create that compact, you share ideas among states, and 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 this would really be the way for states to do things such as allow purchasing of insurance across state lines, which really could not be done without some form of interstate compact because of the of the in, the commerce clause. Well, this has been really terrific. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be very very interested in what you have to say. As I've mentioned before, uh, Representative Burleson is one of the uh, rising stars in the Missouri House. So thank you again for for joining us. Uh, For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would we follow you on Twitter, Representative? Um, Eric Burleson on Twitter. All right. Well, thank you very much. Until next time, so long. (laughs) 